0: The Eyes to the Left. Welcome to this special two part podcast of Eyes to the Left, the Climate Crisis Panel. In November 2019, the Daily Mirror launched its climate issue. Across its print edition and online, we are reporting from Britain and around the globe on the climate crisis threatening our existence. And, we are telling the stories of those lives already being impacted by floods and fires, and by rising sea levels and temperatures. Over the past year, we have repeatedly reported on various issues related to the climate crisis. In the past week alone, we were told of families forced to evacuate their homes after the flooding in parts of northern England. The increasing frequency of disasters for families caused by climate change is deeply worrying. That's why we believe we must do everything we can to ensure our readers are properly informed about the facts surrounding what's happening to our planet. Earlier this month, we held a special climate crisis panel, looking at what we can all do to save our planet. Part two of this podcast will answer audience and readers' questions, but in part one, the panel of scientists and activists explain how we must act to avert a climate catastrophe. But first, an introduction from the editor about why the climate issue is everyone's issue.
1: Um, So good afternoon. Uh, My name is Alison Phillips uh, and I'm the editor of the Daily Mirror. Um, And welcome uh, everyone to our first ever um, panel on the climate crisis. And thank you so much to our panelists who are are here today for taking the time and also to all you people as well who who are joining us here today. So um, why are we here? Well, I think from from the video and from the fact that you're here, you you will probably all know the reasons that are quite self-evident that our planet clearly is in crisis and it is time now for action. Um, but secondly, why we are here is to look at our role as part of the British media in uh, in creating that action. Um, the Mirror has a very long and proud tradition on campaigning uh, for justice um, and on, on issues that affect our readers and wider society. Just for a bit of background for those of you who don't know much about us, in 1912, when the Titanic went down, after that, it was the Daily Mirror which campaigned that from that day forward, no ship should ever go to sea, to sea. Without enough lifeboats for everybody on board a ship, not just the rich people that uh, the Kate Winslet's of that situation. Um, and then from those, those clips that you saw up there afterwards, we were also the people that um, worked with the World Wildlife Fund in creating that back in the early 60s. And it was our work on uh, the fur trade and that iconic mirror front page of a seal being clubbed which changed the attitudes towards the fur trade in this country. More recently, we have campaigned for a change in the law in organ donation, and we're currently in the middle of a, of a, of a battle on various fronts to approach how this country deals with racism in football. Um, and there's something particular about the way that we campaign, because it's not just about telling people uh, what, what, what we think or something that's going on in the chattering classes. Our role is very much about how we change the narrative on important issues in the, mass, in the masses, amongst the masses, the people who are our readers, those compassionate, decent people who make up the vast swathes of Britain, but who need to be persuaded about a topic if we're going to see real change in society. So... Um, Journalism is an interesting topic. All the journalists I know know a little bit bit about a lot of things, but you can look at that in another way, is we don't know very much about anything. So that's why here today we have some experts who are going to try and help us, because contrary to a lot of the popular view amongst the populists, we still believe in experts, we still believe in science, and we still believe that there is a role that we should be informed by that. So... We're doing a lot of work on climate crisis, and next week we are doing a special edition, so the whole of the Daily Mirror is going to be directed very much onto this topic. But we're also acutely aware that we don't necessarily have the skills and the expertise to do this on our own, which is why we thought, right, what we do need to do is speak to people that do have that skill and that expertise. So that's why we are very grateful that you're here today to help us inform what we put into that special issue and our coverage moving forward And we're also very grateful to all of you who have come here today to help us do that because it is by asking those questions and by answering those questions, hopefully, that we will have the information that we need to ensure that we get the right messages across to the masses of Britain who are hungry for for information on this and who, as a result, we will finally see the sufficient action that we need. Um, So now I'm going to hand over to Chris Packham, who, as I'm sure you all know, is uh, the nation's favourite naturalist, not naturist, and uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, no, <laughs> uh, environmentalist and award-winning TV presenter. So thank you very much, Chris.
2: Good afternoon, everyone. I have to say it's a tremendous pleasure to be here. I'm going to pronounce today as a momentous day before we even get started. Who would have thought five, ten, fifteen years ago that a UK tabloid newspaper would be orchestrating and organising an event like this. That is progress, there's no doubt about that. My job today, though, is to be chair. I come to you, well, what, with what degree of expertise, I'm not sure. Um, I'm a, certainly a, a, a fan of wildlife, a naturalist, a zoologist, an environmentalist, but I'm also today representing the uncooperative crusties of the world because I'm a firm supporter of Extinction Rebellion. And we have uh, some members of that on on, on our panel today. But we're going to cut straight on. We want to get through uh, a few prescribed questions that we have, some which have come in from readers already, and then we'll chuck the uh, the open to the floor and everyone can contribute. Um, Our first duty is a a small filmic one. And for that, I would like each of the panellists to introduce themselves by name and by profession or or, or description, and then answer uh, one simple question, and that is why the climate issue is everyone's issue, why the climate issue is indeed everyone's issue. So we start at the far end. So if you can introduce yourself, brief pricey of your professional place, and then why the climate issue is everyone's issue.
3: Thank you, Chris. Uh, My name's Darren Moorcroft. I'm Chief Executive of the Woodland Trust. Uh, This is day one of week five of being Chief Executive of the Woodland Trust. Uh, So everything I say is down to me, uh, as well as probably the Woodland Trust now, so I have to accept that. Um, the, I think the, the answer to your question, uh, Chris is quite a simple one. I think the, uh, the need has never been greater. The will has never been greater and the challenge has never been greater. I think we are in a situation where, uh, the climate affects everybody and everything. So. As a conservationist of over 20 years, I care about nature and I know that climate change is impacting on that nature that I care about. As a father of three children, uh, it will affect the future generations and their future generations of which I care about. I think the reality is that we have to see this unprecedented time that we are in of a climate crisis and a nature crisis as uh, two sides of the same coin. And I think we have to address them as such. And I think we have to address them with a one eye on both environmental justice and social justice. So that's why it matters to everybody, because everybody should be able to enjoy nature. Everybody should be able to enjoy clean air, clean water, uh, soil which will produce the food of the future. That's why I think it's important to everybody. Excellent. Mike, can you go next? Off
4: you go. My name is Mike Childs. I'm head of science policy and research at Friends of Earth. I have been for about 30 years banging my head against a brick wall alongside many other long-standing campaigners. So it's fantastic to see the mirror standing up and speaking out on this critically important issue. To me, this is about people. Uh, people across the world are already dying because of floods, uh, wildfires, uh, droughts that are made worse by climate change. And even here in the UK, I live in York. Um, York's seen repeated extreme flooding events and people are in misery because of that, but that's the same across the rest of the, of the country. And we know, the scientists tell us, if we burn more oil, gas uh, and coal, uh, that the situation will get that much worse and particularly impacting on future generations, but also the poorest around the world who've done the least to cause this problem. The thing for me is, while the issue is evident and in front of us and, and urgent, the lack of action is uh, baffling because the solutions are clear. We know how to insulate homes. We know how to run buses and trams uh, affordably and effectively on time. Renewable energy is now cheap. We just need to deliver these things and, and have the political will to deliver them. And that's where we all come in as citizens raising our voice, however we do it, whether it's through youth strikes, through its Extinction Rebellion, or through tr- other forms of campaigning. We can make a difference, and that's what's keeping me uh, optimistic about the future.
2: Okay, Holly,
5: ready to roll? Um, hi, my name is Holly Gillibrand. I'm a 14-year-old environmental activist and school climate striker. And I think m- my perspective from this is that I'm not even out of high school, and yet when I'm 25 years old, climate change will become irreversible. And What we as a species do now, my generation can't undo in the future and we didn't ask for it. We've been born into a world of environmental crises and we didn't ask for it, we didn't cause it. But with the school climate strikes, we've decided that
6: we're not going to put up with this anymore and that we're going to do something about it. Hello, my name is Natalie Petarelli. I'm a senior scientist at the Zoological Society of London. On top of what has been said, I would say that for me the issue is that it matters to everyone because we have to do this together. Um, We can't just have a fraction of people doing one thing and the other doing something else. We're going to have to coordinate and we have to change and change is difficult and it's not straightforward. It's not straightforward to change your home, how you heat your home, how you drive your car. If you drive your car, there's a lot of discussion, which means that we're going to have to talk more about how we face change together. And to me, this is a great opportunity to do this today and in the future.
7: Thanks, my name is Doug Parr. I am the Chief Scientist and Policy Director at Greenpeace and have been for quite a long time. I started writing about climate change um, nearly 30 years ago. Um, So it's fantastic to see the upwelling of concern that is finally starting to approach the levels that we need to see. Because tackling climate change, the impacts of climate change rather, Um, are going to be multiple, they're going to be profound, and they're going to interact. Because there will be more heat in places, there will be too much water in places, there will be too little water in places, all of which are foundations for the kind of civilization that we're used to having. And certainly at the bad end of the spectrum, um, that means that civilization as we know it would break down. So it matters to everybody. It also matters to everybody because tackling it, even from a rich, um, relatively well-insulated country from some of those impacts, is still going to touch everybody's lives. From how we get around, how we grow food, how we get power, what and how we build, what kind of infrastructure we have, how we we use our land, if we use our land. And how much waste, whether we produce waste, all of these things are going to profoundly affect everybody's lives if we're serious about tackling the climate crisis to the level that it needs tackling. We're pleased to see that there is a a commitment to zero emissions, net zero emissions. I just want to emphasize at this point, that's really hard. It doesn't mean it can't be done, but it is really hard. And I think the level of will and understanding that we need around those issues to get close to it is quite profound compared to anything we see at the moment.
8: Hi, I'm Dr Emily Grossman. I've got a PhD in molecular biology and I work as a science broadcaster, a science writer and a science educator. I'm also one of the founding members of a group called Scientists for Extinction Rebellion. We have a declaration statement that's now been signed by over 1,500 top scientists across the globe Uh, pledging support for non-violent direct action against government inaction against over the climate and ecological emergency. I think this impacts everyone because what's going on now has never happened before. The climate and ecological emergency is the biggest threat that humanity has ever faced. It's human caused and we have to stop making it worse. Or for the first time we will face catastrophe that we cannot think our way out of, invent our way out of, or buy our way out of. It will affect 100% of us and everything that we love. The future of our children and our grandchildren is at stake. We have to act now. We have to act radically before it's too late. We can't afford to wait another second.
9: I'm Tams Nedwards. I'm a climate scientist at King's College London. My research area is thinking about the uncertainty in our predictions about future climate change and particularly what the ice sheets are going to do with respect to sea level rise. For me as a climate scientist and as a human, the two words that come to mind are irreversibility and injustice. Irreversibility, because the West Antarctic ice sheet, which I study, uh, seems to be close to a tipping point of collapse where the IPCC report uh, last year assessed there was a moderate risk of that happening at one degree of warming, which is where we are now, and high risk at two and a half degrees. The loss of of an ice sheet, which is 3.3 meters of sea level rise, is not something that you can undo on any meaningful human timescale. Species that are under severe uh, human pressures, multiple human pressures, um, could be irreversibly lost. Something like reef building, coral in the tropical uh, warm waters, we're at risk between one and a half to two degrees of warming, uh, of losing between 90 and 99% of those. And injustice, because although everyone in this room might personally be okay with climate change. We can have our air conditioning on a hot day and we can live in a city like London that is well protected from sea level rise. Um, The climate change uh, effects around the world as we've heard. Sorry I'm shaking because I have um, some fatigue at the moment um, so sorry for the distraction. Um, The climate change impacts that we'll see in the world are going to affect the most vulnerable, and we know that we cannot um, help them adapt to everything. And under the very highest emissions predictions of the end of the century, there are parts of the world that may reach thresholds of combined temperature and humidity, which are then intolerable for even fit humans to be outside for more than a few hours. Now, What that means in terms of adaptation is difficult to say, and I hope and think that we won't reach those level of emissions. But if we, in this room, in a well-off country, can't care about people in other parts of the world and in the future, then what kind of humans are we?
2: Thank you very much. Um, Just before we move on to some questions, I'm going to ask you each of you at the end for a demand, a simple demand that we could make today that, if satisfied, would make a pretty instantaneous difference tomorrow and would lead to positive change. So have that in your minds as you're listening to your colleagues. Holly, I'm going to start with you. The question that's come in is um, why is climate change an issue that matters greatly to young people? I think you answered that actually in your first statement. But the second part of the question is what is your message to those who don't think that your message, the the, the youth message, is important? What would you say to those people as frankly as, as you can?
5: Um that's quite a difficult question
2: I've seen you on twitter holly you you speak your mind <laughs> don't 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 hold back
5: um, I think that people need to remember that we are the future adults we are the future um politicians the future change... not change makers um the future decision makers and we are also the generation that is going to be impacted most by this. And so we have as much right to have a say as anyone, maybe, I, I don't know, maybe probably not even more. But our voice matters. And with the school strikes, we've seen that when you've got millions of young people coming out and um, telling the world that what they think and that this is important, then change does happen. We've had the climate emergency declarations and we've had the um I can't think of any specific ones right now but policies coming through in governments that won't change a lot but they are progress for example we've had the suspension on fracking um in Scotland where I live we've had the complete ban of fracking and so these are just small examples of what can happen when you get large numbers of people coming out and sharing their opinion and in this instance, it's the youth that are doing that.
2: Holly, tell me what happens. When, when you wake up every Friday morning, come hello high water in Fort William, so that's mainly high water, <laughs> um, and your alarm goes off and you get up and you're going to take part in your climate strike, how do you feel? Are you motivated by disappointment, frustration, mm-hmm. anger? Because something compels you to do that. You've done it every week without fail. I see your photographs. So what, what's your motivation there?
5: Um, I think this is probably a bad word in today's society but love because my love for the natural world and for my friends and my family and I think that's what drives me because it's very difficult if you have like an emotion such as anger and frustration those are important but it's very hard to have keep sustaining that but I think love is one very very powerful emotion that makes you never give up and keeps you determined that you're going to keep doing what you're doing and, and you're not going to give up.
2: I don't think we could applaud all the answers, but that one oh, certainly yeah. deserves some. <laughs> uh, Time's in, time we're gonna move on. I've got a question here. Uh, you work for or with the IPCC, the International Panel for Climate Change. Um, what is your view of climate change deniers and how do we continue to take them on?
9: That's a great question. I'm um, right, thanks. Yeah, so uh, the IPCC is the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change that writes these great big reports. Um, I'm working on the next one, which isn't out for another couple of years yet, year and a half. Um, contrary to what people might assume, we're not paid for that. <laughs> it's an evenings and weekends job. Um, and there is, it's a really interesting question. And I have some personal friends who are climate sceptics, uh, who don't who wouldn't say that the impacts of future climate change are serious enough to warrant the kind of large-scale action we've been talking about to meet the Paris Agreement? And I think, um, to some extent, there's, there's been um, some shift in people's views. I think that um, you know we do have to tackle some climate change, that we do have to make some of these um, changes, but we we can't understand how how people are thinking about that problem unless we listen to them. And that's something that I try actively to do. I don't always succeed. Um, But to understand what it is, is it you know is it some particular policy is it um some particular priority they want to tackle poverty instead more directly um and that's that's the only way we can't we can't be belligerent we can't throw facts at them and you know assume that will work we can't uh get angrier and angrier ultimately we have to listen and we have to try to bring people with us with things like the co-benefits of adapting to climate change or mitigating emissions you know uh, not relying on fossil fuels which we know are going to run out, um, not uh, emitting so much air pollution which we know is bad for us, um, protecting species which we know are good for supporting our our life on, on the planet. So I think we we just have to, to listen rather than shout.
2: Occasionally, though, mischief is undoubtedly uh, at play. Uh, we've seen with Extinction Rebellion a think tank report that was put together that described us all as anarchists, I think. Um, and a politically malevolence, but um, it was paid for by people with a vested interest in not changing climate policies. So that is something which is quite insidious and potentially dangerous. How do you think we should go about approaching those people?
9: um well obviously all of this has become really deeply rooted in identity and uh, and culture identity and identity politics and and people's values um as well as the vested interest a- aspect that people talk about and i think um I think you know what we have to do is we have to tackle misinformation about science, which can come from all directions. Um, I think we have to keep plugging away with the, as I say, the co-benefits, as we call them, the extra benefits of of what we're doing, um, the ways in which the world can be cleaner, can be cheaper, energy can be cheaper, um, and so forth. And and I think actually. My feeling is that there is movement that people are are really saying, well, there is climate change, and we are going to do something about it. And now talking about the policies, rather than saying, is it happening, and should we do anything at all? So I do, I am more optimistic about that. I do think there has been um,
2: some movement. We're still a flat earth society, you know. <laughs> That's a whole different story. It, I'm afraid it is. Um, Emily, your question: um, Has Extinction Rebellion succeeded in its goals so far? And what do you say to those who think that on occasion it's been counterproductive? I suppose one of those examples might be when people reacted very negatively to the people who were climbing on the tube trains.
8: Yeah, that's a very good question. So first of all, has it been successful so far? So let's be clear that none of the actual demands of Extinction Rebellion have been met or have been anywhere close to be met. However, the... The presence of Extinction Rebellion, I think we can have no doubt, has raised huge awareness about this crisis this emergency that we are facing as humanity it has really changed the kind of uh where it sits on the map in terms of the media in terms of politics even though our demands have not been met in terms of just general awareness of people on the street or at home watching or at home listening even if that awareness is simply to ask questions to want to know more to seek answers or to kind of uh protest against the modes that have been used. I would say there is no doubt that in the past years, particularly in the past six months, that the where we sit, where climate change and the ecological crisis sits, on the map of awareness has completely changed. Um, The climate and ecological crisis is now up there in the top three of things that everyday people are most concerned about in terms of their life and their existence here in the UK. And that's a huge, huge shift. It's also massively changed in terms of the reporting. I know that's something we're here partly to also help with today. But in terms of the way the media are reporting on uh, climate crisis, on biodiversity loss, on the coverage it's getting on the conversations that are being had there's been a massive massive change. Um, That said the demands of Extinction Rebellion for those who perhaps are not aware are that uh, governments and in this case the media too tell the truth about the extent to which this is an emergency and just how bad it is and there is no doubt that that is still not happening. Yes it is getting better and it's getting better in the media, in some media, but there is no doubt that that this is not happening. Because if everybody really knew, if everyone really, really knew, and I think probably people on this panel and probably in this room uh, are pretty much there with this, but if everybody really knew just how bad it was, just how urgently we need to act, and just what consequences would happen to our lives, to the lives of our family, our loved ones, and to poorer people, people in less advantaged countries across the world. If they really knew what is happening and what will happen, we would be doing more. People, More people would be on the streets. More people like myself, and I imagine people here, would be having sleepless nights going, this can't happen, what are we going to do? And until that happens, I think it's clear that the truth is not being told. Um, The second demand being to to bring uh, global uh, UK greenhouse gas emissions down to net zero by 2025. Now, some people have said that this is a very difficult thing to do. There is no doubt that this would be a very difficult thing to do. The mitigation rates would have to be super high. We would require, you know, pretty much a sort of almost like a wartime mobilisation and change, a radical change to our society. However, That is now what is needed for us to stand even a reasonable chance of having a sustainable future, of preventing societal collapse, loss of food, loss of clean drinking water, and thousands, millions, if not billions, of loss of life. Um, Now, of course, this is all risk. There is no absolute here. We cannot say, if we don't do this, this will happen. But it's pretty unequivocal. Climate scientists across the world are agreeing that this really does need to be done. Um so is it working the awareness is building but the demands are not being met just for just for the record the third demand being to call in a citizens assembly to let the people to let everyday people decide on how we as a community as a society are going to move forward with making the radical changes that need to be made in order to secure our futures and that of our children and grandchildren but in answer the, to the question of the modes of action. Um, again, there has been a lot of talk about this. There's been a lot of controversy about this. I need to stress here that Extinction Rebellion, I think one of its, uh, one of its great uh, qualities is that it is a decentralized movement. It is a movement in which people adhere to uh, what are 10 values and to the three demands. But outside of that, people are free to take actions that they want to do that feel aligned with or appropriate to the level of urgency that we are now in. I must say, and it's been publicly said, that a lot, if not a vast majority of those individuals who align themselves with Extinction Rebellion did not agree with some of the actions that were taken, including the action on the tube, Um, However, there were individuals that felt that that was proportional to the impact that we're going to have in our society. And I think what we can look at, what we can ask is to say, well, yes, you know, some might say, okay, let's take more public transport. Blocking public transport isn't a useful thing to do here. I personally agree. However, there is no doubt that if we don't take radical action, and it's not being taken, there's a lot of people who are very upset, who are very angry, who are experiencing climate grief, who are experiencing real uh, impacts of feeling the enormity every single day of how huge this issue is and that hasn't been brought to the public attention. Um, and that if we look at how society will be in 10, 15, 20, 30, certainly by the end of the century, If we don't take radical action now, then the sorts of things that even a sort of uh, extreme version of people who are aligned and knowing this truth, the sort of things that they might do are really not out of proportion with the impact that we will be facing as a society here um, in terms of uh, potential food strikes, uh, not food strikes, food hikes, um, people who are not getting enough food, um, uh, civil unrest, conflict, you know, imagine a world where we can't uh, get tubes and trains to work because the infrastructure breaks down. Imagine the world where we don't have enough to eat, where people are fighting in the streets to feed their children. You know, this is a real reality of what we're moving towards. So yes, I agree. Some of the types of action may be problematic for some people, and huge disruption, but I would really beg us to look at the disruption to our lives that is going to take place if we don't take the kind of radical action that movements like Extinction Rebellion and the Friday school strikes are calling up for and are simply not being seen.
2: Okay, Doug, Emily stuck true to her mission and told us the truth. It's not a pretty one. Very often I think there's a danger that the climate crisis, as large and existential as it is, overwhelms people. It diminishes their ability to empower themselves to actually believe that they as individuals can make a difference. So what can we do as individuals, both personally and politically?
7: So I think there is this uh, tendency, and I think it's an unhelpful tendency, to um, see the climate crisis as something that people have to take individual responsibility for. You know, that somehow if they... If they recycle a bit more, that that's you know that's the thing that they can do. And of course, it's worthwhile, and of course, I would not absolutely suggest to anybody that they shouldn't you know walk instead of taking the car or walk or cycle, that they shouldn't make sure that they minimize minimize their waste in the first instance, not just not just um, recycle stuff, be careful where they go on holiday, be careful about what they eat to minimize their emissions, etc. All of these things are valuable in and of themselves. But there is, for me, a profound distinction between that kind of activity and allowing expansion at Heathrow, which the government is currently planning to do. Because every little individual thing that everybody in the country could do would be wiped off, and more, by one stroke of a pen from a Secretary of State or, in in effect, the Prime Minister. And so there is the the role of the individual, and people should do that because of, partly because of charges of hypocrisy, but also because we are moral beings. You know, I mean, the very centre of the climate issue is one of justice. That we are, uh, firstly, that you know that the, the impacts are being unfairly visited on largely those from the global south, where it's a problem that's been caused by the global north. There is an issue of injustice in that the sort of changes that we can see could be profoundly mishandled in the way that our exit from coal in the UK was mishandled. And we have got some fairly big industries where this is going to happen again. But what it does mean is that the big choices that need to be made are those that are going to be made by governments who have the authority and power to make them. And so it is the political activity sitting alongside the things that we want to do as moral humans that are the ones that are going to be most impactful. I mean, I, you know, you'd know, you expect me to say that. I'm part of a pressure group. But I think any kind of you know understanding of the budgets and numbers and where they sit means that that's the road you have to take the steel industry is not going to decarbonize the steel industry the cement industry the chemical industry the glass industry they are not going to decarbonize by individual action they are going it is going to happen by you know r&d regulation and other tools that government can offer
2: so so doug the key thing is We can do our bit, personally, and it's empowering, and it makes us feel good, and we're contributing. And it's the right thing to do. But it's it's not enough. It's not enough. So actively what we can do, we've got an election coming. Yeah. So surely this is a time when the cross in the box needs to count for the environment. Yeah,
7: sure. So um, we will, Greenpeace, um, I and and a colleague or two, will be ranking the manifestos. And we will be able to tell well before polling day if if climate is the thing that you want to do, uh, is that your determining thing, climate and nature, I should say, is the determining thing about your vote, we will have the information there. So is
2: Greenpeace going to tell us where the best vote goes for the environment?
7: We are going to put the information out there and people can make their mind up. But I'm pretty sure, by the, well, I don't know. I mean, I haven't seen the manifestos yet, none of them published. But I think people will be able to make their own minds up when they see the information out there and how we rank them on... Um, well you know I think we've got 16 criteria which will condense down to about five but anyway yeah you know there'll be stuff that people can look at and make their judgments about. I have a feeling actually that uh, there's another project going on which these school strikers might be involved with it too. So there'll be there'll be there'll be information available so guidance, for people so wanting to do So guidance is
2: coming from Greenpeace basically? Yes. Yes. Excellent. Thank you. Um, Mike, Emily has been quite forthright on the potential impacts of our climate crisis on the human species. Let's take it to the environment now. Uh, uh, We're part of nature. Some people say that, you know, we're dependent on, on nature. They forget that we're actually part of it. What are the likely impacts UK wise on the environment and its biodiversity? Should we see the predictions coming true?
0: Well, as
4: you say, we're inextricably linked, which is why Friends of the Earth has always had a view of uh, looking after people and looking after the environment are two sides of the same coin. You can't look after the environment unless you look after people, and you can't look after people without looking after the environment. I mean, in the UK, we will see loss of species. Um, We're already seeing that anyway, there's huge amounts of habitat damage, and intensive farming which is also contributing to climate change, has already wiped out large amounts of of species or diminished the numbers of them um, significantly. Um, We see uh, sea level rise will further uh, exacerbate and damage potentially the salt marshes around the UK, important for carbon storage but also incredibly important for people. And if you look around the coastline, we can see that, as I said, I mentioned I live in York. I go across to to the cliffs near Flamborough and and Filey every year and see the bird life there. It's absolutely amazing, but you're already seeing diminishing numbers uh, of puffins around that area as the seas are warming, the sand eels are moving further north. Um, So you're seeing impacts on, on, on bird life there as well i'm going
2: to play devil's advocate now and say that if puffins disappear it's going to really upset me because i'm very passionate about birds but many people in the audience will say i can without puffins i don't need puffins but we do don't we we need that balanced functional sustainable ecosystem
4: yes we do uh i mean puffins are beautiful and and, and we're human beings who also love beauty and and one of the things that inspired me to be an environmentalist so many years ago was one of Dave, Dave Atterbury's first um, TV series, Life, Life on Earth, which showed the, the wonders of the rainforest, uh, uh, as amongst other places as well. And the sheer beauty of this planet is worth protecting in its own right um, so that's why we need to protect the puffin as well, because we are a species that can enjoy beauty, but yes, we live in ecosystems that are intricate webs, and you pull apart parts of that ecosystem, we don 't quite know when it will fall apart, but it will begin to unravel and fall apart so whilst in some parts of the world, you know if you lose the coral reefs, immense beauty, people's livelihoods depend directly on those coral reefs for their for their subsistence uh, of their food, or you lose the Amazon. Um, and suddenly use the, 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 the rainwater recycling done by the Amazon and you get droughts further um, uh, Well, in the, in the States and elsewhere in South America as well. So we're intrinsically connected to nature. We are part of nature and that's true here in the UK as overseas. But you can't protect UK wildlife and ignore the rest of the overseas as though they're separate things. We have to look, at, look after nature wherever it is around the world.
2: Uh, Natalie, that brings me to yourself. Um, Since 1970, um, we've lost between 40 and 50% of the world's wildlife. It's a bit careless, isn't it? I mean, I I feel ashamed that having been a conservationist that long, on my watch, we have collectively failed so badly. Um, So tell us a little bit about the global impact uh, uh, of that loss and perhaps how it might impact on us as a species. But also, let's start moving in another direction now and talking about some of the um, positive aspects because we do have the means to restore, repair, reintroduce that wildlife, don't we?
6: Yeah, I think what's important to understand that when we think about climate change and nature and um, the ecological crisis is that everything is connected. Um, um, the loss of wildlife reduces our ability to mitigate the impact of climate change, and to adapt to climate change. Um, And so the more we lose that buffer, the, the more we dig our grave. Um, so the, the question is, how do we work better with nature? And uh, the more we lose, the less we're doing so effectively. Um, we have had the tendency to try to get ourselves out of problems through engineering and through a solution, which sometimes works. But in the, ter- in, the, in the situation like climate change, actually nature provides some, some really good uh, solution. I think what's interesting also to understand is that climate change interact with other things that we do. So we change the land, we pollute and all of that work together which puts added pressure, interacting pressure on wildlife. And again we lose wildlife or wildlife move because uh, climate change doesn't systematically mean extinction. Sometimes it just means species moving around uh, which is why we start to have uh, ticks coming more and more in the UK and the disease that goes with it. Which is why we have a malaria slow coming back in Europe. So climate change means that species uh, don't have much chance, uh, much uh, choice. They can either die, move, or or do well because the conditions are improving for them. But that's a a minority of uh, species. But it's true that we are not, uh, we we don't have to have the future that we are uh, carving for ourselves. There are solutions, there are things we can do, and we don't have to continue to lose wildlife. There's actually a way to to bring back wildlife or to work with wildlife for wildlife to do better. And so um, we can restore, but um, it's quite important to understand that climate change is, is changing things in a way where we can't bring back what was there before because it's just simply not suitable. Um, so which means that we might have new ecosystem, new wildlife coming in new areas. And that's OK. Nature does change. The, the point is to try to work with it, to let it to a point where it can find a new uh, stable um, uh, um, uh, um, a new stable equilibrium, which were for us and for the, for, for society in general.
2: Thank you. And Darren, moving on to those positive things we can do that will benefit us and wildlife and the environment. Yesterday I spent a soggy Sunday working with the Woodland Trust, making a programme for Channel 5 in trying to raise £150,000 per pound, 100,000 trees. Now, trees have been in the news, haven't they, As a, obviously through rewilding. We want a better structure for our ecosystems. But part and parcel of that, in the last few months at least, people have been talking about the need to reforest the UK in terms of its carbon capture. We've got about 13% forest cover in the UK, as opposed to 30% in most of Western Europe. We're one of the, the most deforested countries, certainly, in Europe. But if we can get more trees in the ground, better for the environment, good for carbon capture, good for pollution, all sorts of things.
3: Absolutely, Chris, and you probably all said it all, but what I would say is the, the 13% is both a travesty and an opportunity. So you, you mentioned that in Europe, uh, the average is approximately 38% woodland cover, uh, and we're at 13%. The Climate Change Committee report said we should be aspiring to 17 to 19% uh, by 2050. Now, you may argue that that's not uh, soon enough, uh, and we would want it to be sooner, but that's 1.5 billion trees. Uh, and as you would imagine, uh, as I sit here, I think about the, uh, the value that those trees will play in changing the nature of land in the UK. And it won't simply be carbon capture. It will be delivering some of the things that we've heard about from other panellists, uh, including the nature recovery that we want to see. It will be the uh, flood alleviation to help us to withstand some of the impacts that we are going to see with climate change of heavier rainfall events. It's the shade that we need in places like London, but everywhere else, in order for us to have a better uh, ability to survive uh, in the heat of the uh, extremes of the summer, and as well as the air pollution that uh, we are experiencing at the moment, you know, we uh, the air pollution in Delhi is in the news at the moment. It can't be that far away for us to be thinking about, actually, with 2,000 premature deaths in the UK down to air pollution, we should be doing more. And one of the things that we know that trees do, alongside all of those other benefits, is take the particulates out of the air, and we've seen those particulates dropping in and around some of the schools that we've been uh, had the privilege to uh, plant new hedges and trees with.
2: Okay. I'm going to move on now to a couple of other questions, um, try and whiz through as many people as possible. Um, the question is, should we all give up flying, eating red meat, driving completely? You can see, you start out. I mean, I think the thing is that, you know, that, I mean, I've been vegan for a year. One of the biggest problems I've faced are the didactic ultra vegans, because I've still got leather shoes on. And there were absurd shoes at that. Um, but the key thing is, isn't it about us moving in a positive direction? And and, and from your point of view personally, uh, what, what stance do you take on these issues, which are, you know a few years ago we would have thought nothing of, but now there are ethical and moral, moral decisions to be made
3: by all of us as individuals? Absolutely. And I think, I suppose, lifestyle changes, we absolutely need to do. So whilst I say we should plant more trees, we need to change the way in which we live our lives as well. And um, so personally, I think uh, I am eating more uh, vegetarian uh, diet uh, during the week I still eat meat uh, I eat what I would suggest to be good quality meat from uh, with provenance that I know of but I know that I'm in a privileged position to do that so uh, and also I'm in a privileged position to now moving away from uh, a petrol based car to an electric car and i'm in so personally I'm in the process of looking at which electric car I'm best suited for my lifestyle and having to travel around the country. I thought about a hybrid, but it kind of felt like it wasn't going far enough. But again, I'm in a privileged position to be able to make that choice. So I wouldn't impose it on others, but I would suggest that everybody should be thinking about the contributions uh, that they're able to make. And also, uh, I have the opportunity to plant some trees on the uh, 30th of November as part of the Big Climate Fight Back, uh, which, Chris, you mentioned uh, you were helping us with yesterday. Uh, with that opportunity, I should take it. So I suppose my overall message is our lifestyles do need to change, and the opportunities that we take that we have, we must take because we can't just sit and wait for other people to do it on our behalf.
2: Okay, Mike. Then I come to Doug as well. What are we going to do about this flying issue? Some people have got used to flying, taking taxis effectively from one part of the country to another, going on holiday several times a year. Well, how do we face that on a personal ethical level?
4: on a personal level i think we need to try as much as possible align what we do in our own lives with what we want to call for politically if we're calling for action on climate change i think it's very difficult to say uh, personally i think climate change and, and nature degradation is a fund issue of fundamental importance for the future of of humanity and at the same time uh, eat loads of red meat fly everywhere and drive everywhere so the reality is i think People will have to think about that and reduce their flights. But that said, there is also the reality that the vast bulk of flights are taken are multiple flights by the most wealthy in in society. So I'm not going to stand here and say some family who uh, is uh, working hard, not paid very much, really hard pressed, can't go on a family holiday abroad every year. I'm lucky; uh, I can afford me and my partner and children to take. Uh, The long train journeys through to Slovenia the other year and Poland a couple of years ago. But they're much more expensive than flying. So we also need to bear in mind the reality of where we're at. I think we will have to do as much as we can to align our behaviours to our political calling. But those people who repeatedly fly throughout the year, predominantly wealthy people, then I think um, we need to see the introduction of a frequent flyer levy to put the price up considerably to price them off doing that. And we have to cancel the expansion at Heathrow, as Doug mentioned, but also across the rest of the country where airports are, are, are striving to uh, increase capacity. We need to reduce emissions from flying dramatically. And that a large part of that will be about personal action. But as Doug rightfully said earlier, a large part of that is about political action. So I don't think you can separate out the what you do in your lifestyle from what you do politically. I think they both have to be aligned.
2: Holly, you, you travelled from Fort William in Scotland on the overnight sleeper train. Was that a conscious decision not to fly? I mean, I know there's not an airport at Fort William, but you could have gone from Inverness. Was that a decision that you've made based upon that?
5: Um, yeah, I think that right now I'm in a position where I need. I think I need to do everything I can and avoiding flying is one of them. And But the problem at, at the moment is that flying is cheaper, whereas um, getting the overnight train cost maybe a couple of hundred pounds maybe a bit more and so clearly
2: your mum paid
5: <laughs>
2: we'll, we'll let you off on this <laughs>
5: um and but we can't like tell people who don't who aren't as fortunate as ourselves to stop flying because right now flying is the cheapest option and it gets them to where they need to go so i th- yeah definitely we need political change on this because Yes, we can't just tell people to stop flying when that's really sometimes the only alternative for them.
2: Doug, uh, what about carbon offsetting? I carbon offset. Uh, is my conscience clean? Uh, I
7: wouldn't. I, I uh, take a view that carbon offsetting is um, sometimes not even a sticking plaster. Um, it is, um, It is actually not the right thing to be doing. Now, I have to be careful here because money that is set aside for offsetting can be dedicated to projects that are doing good. I don't want to diminish that for a moment. But as soon as you start saying, yeah, here is some money that we've put aside for, well, typically planting trees as a way of dealing with your flight, then I think that the risk there is that there's an abdication of responsibility. Take responsibility for your own emissions. Um, So you know, private jets are not okay if you plant a few trees. Um, because one of the things we do need to emphasize when we're looking at the massive scale that will have change that we need is that the ability of the biosphere, so all nature, all reforestation and so on, the ability of that system to soak up carbon isn't infinite. It is limited. And we should not be frittering away that valuable ability to pull carbon from the atmosphere into the biosphere on frivolous flying. Uh, And therefore, you know, there is no substitute for getting out of fossil fuels. There is no substitute for people choosing the right thing and not the wrong thing where they have the ability and capacity to do so. And the idea that some, you know, throwing some money at a eucalyptus plantation somewhere in Africa somehow accommodates makes that okay is just in my my estimation completely wrong I emphasize it is possible that carbon offsetting has done some good in some places at some times but a lot of it hasn't and the the uh, um so, for example, the the, the, the way to ins- the, this was supposed to be institutionalized internationally it was something called a Clean Development Mechanism. It was estimated that eighty percent of those projects actually delivered zero zero benefit. It is very difficult to get carbon offsetting right, and in any case, even if, if it is using the biosphere, it's not the right way to behaving to be behaving when a personal decision to emit less should have been taken.
2: Uh, did you want to jump in there?
9: Yeah, thanks. I just I guess I've been trying to get across an idea that I think isn't super well known, which kind of relates to this, uh, which is kind of about global, the global offset, if you like, because there's this term net zero gets bandied around. And I think we often don't explain what that means. Um, So we're not talking about zero emissions by 2050 or by whatever date that someone is uh, different groups um, and political parties are, are going for we're talking about net zero emissions, which means we know that we cannot cut all emissions and flying is gonna be probably one of them for some time to come. Um, and so the net zero part means we must be extracting CO2 from the air as as we emit it. And of course the classic you know, machine for doing that is a tree and they're very good at it and we've always thought of it as off, offsetting, but the other way we can, think of it is negative CO2 emissions. That's the sort of jargon that gets used, carbon dioxide removal. But I think what hasn't really been talked about enough is the scale of the thing. And it's been hinted at a bit with land use. If we're going to meet the Paris Agreement target of one and a half degrees of warming, the estimates of the IPCC report last year are that we need up to, um, well, so there are two main methods at the moment that we know how to do that through plants and crops. There's planting trees and there's planting crops to use as biofuels which we then use as biofuels and capture the CO2 and and lock it into the ground or other methods and both of those have the net effect of taking CO2 out of the air but to do that on the scale that we need knowing how quickly we can cut our emissions we would need up to 27 percent of global agricultural land. To be put aside for forests and biofuel crops, that's 11% of the global land area. Now, the consequences of that for food security um, and living, you know, livelihoods um, are immense. And there are ways to do it that are better than others in terms of using wastelands and and degraded land, uh, degraded land, so that you you prevent soil erosion and things. But um, that that's what's required, and we don't have a good scalable way to do this carbon dioxide removal uh, right now. We you know we know the benefits of trees, uh, and they have lots of co-benefits. We know that we can just about do this bioenergy stuff, although we don't have it anything like the scale. We basically don't have any at the moment. Um, You know, there's technological solutions that may be on the horizon of of chemically trapping CO two from the air. At the moment, they're too expensive and too energy intensive. Um, I think the states in the US they're they're throwing a lot of money at it um, because it's again a kind of a get out clause, if you like, for continuing emissions. But that's the that's the scale of the of the challenge
2: that is not really talked about, I think, enough. Um, Briefly, Emily, because I want to throw questions to the floor after this, but. um, you, um, you gave us your prophecies, and they're terrifying, and they're realistic, of course. We know that. You've told us the truth. Um, as a consequence of those, we're going to see increases in food prices. We're going to see more pressure on the land to grow that food to keep the prices down. We're going to see droughts, which are going to instigate migrations. We're going to see political turmoil. With that comes potential for conflict. There's a cost here, and there are two costs that we, I think, just briefly talk about the two costs. One is that, therefore, the human, the planetary cost, if you like, and the other is the cash cost, because if we do aim to meet any of these targets, it's going to hit us in the pocket as individuals, isn't it?
8: Well, that's the thing is that you, it's kind of this offsetting in terms of human life, right? It's like, yes, there's going to be, have to be a huge change. There's going to have to be a huge change on a human level to the way we live our lives. And there's going to be, have to be a huge input, as you say, financially into bringing out, bringing about the sorts of change on the sort of like global scale kind of uh, mobilization that is needed. Um, Across the world and and here in the UK to make that happen. But it's about weighing it up. You know, it's about saying, okay, well, yeah, that's going to be hard. But if we're really realistic about the kind of world that we are moving towards, kind of careering towards, um, if we don't bring about those changes, then it's kind of like saying, well, you know, okay, well, it's going to be a bit expensive now. But I mean, the the governor of the Bank of England, Mark Carney, has basically said that we're heading towards financial instability. And by the time we get there, it's going to be too late. And the the UN Secretary General has said, "We're we're looking at a real existential threat here. This is not just climate scientists, although obviously we should be listening to climate scientists. This is also the top names across the UK and globally who are saying that this is this bad. And yes that it will take a big financial outlay. But the, the consequences in terms of financial instability that's going to happen as soon as the prices start to go up on food, as you said, um, top insurance companies have also said that we're looking at a world where extreme weather is going to get so common that... the the world is simply going to be uninsurable. So we're already looking across the globe at billions and billions of pounds worth of damage um, annually for extreme weather, for droughts, for floods, for uh, uh, sea level rise, for cyclones. That's already happening. And insurance companies are simply not going to be able to to ensure such situations. There are insurance companies who are already saying that they're going to stop insuring basements in, in cities like London and New York and, and other international cities because of the threats to flooding from freak storms, but also from sea level rise. So it, it's a sort of cost benefit analysis, if that's the right phrase to use. I'm not an economist at all myself, but but I mean it makes complete nonsense to say, well, it's going to cost a lot of money and it's going to cause a lot of disruption to our lives when we're thinking 10, 20, 30, 40 years, certainly by the end of the Century, we're looking at potential complete financial collapse and deaths of millions, if not billions, of people. What more is there to say? That's my take.
2: Stop there. <laughs> um, lastly, Natalie, is there space for other life on Earth? And we've heard about the impacts. We know that we have a growing human population at the moment as well, which is something that we haven't touched upon. Um, all of that biodiversity loss, all of the climate change, the pressure on the natural world, excluding our species, although we know we're intrinsically linked with it, is phenomenal at this point in time.
6: Yeah, it is phenomenal, and uh, but I, I think I think that uh, we there are things we can do to get better at living with wildlife. We've been very good at. Um, at separating ourselves from wildlife and not connecting with wildlife and not see the value of wildlife to the point where we had to create a framework to value wildlife again, <laughs> so um, this is about coexistence somehow, coexistence with other life form. How do you div- and it, it doesn't mean that one needs to um, override all the other. There is. F- possibility to have a mutual um, interaction and actually uh, b- mutual benefits and, and synergies which a lot of animals do all the time. So to be a bit more concrete, um, whenever we decide to exclude wildlife from our home, from our garden, from our f- from every single space where we do not try to find solutions that work for books, is where we slowly but surely eat that biodiversity. Um, and it's probably one of the discussions that we may need to have uh, um, as of uh, not only um, how much we impact the climate, but uh, and, and that's why the ecological crisis and the climate crisis are linked, but how how we can think about our activity uh, so that we, we think about that sustainability, which means keeping that... Um, the, those uh, the species um, with us if it makes sense
0: thank you for listening to part one of the climate panel in our next episode the panel tackle questions from guests in the audience and from daily mirror readers you can follow the coverage of our climate issue on social media by searching hashtag mirror